Well, welcome to your uh, almost weekend. It's uh, John Schools here, Savannah Tamarkin Disability Law Show. We are back for another Friday evening. Plenty of chances for you to reach out to Savannah and his team. By the way, maybe your email will appear on this show. You can do so. It's uh, really simple. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And the phone number, one 855 You can also use the website, disabilityrights.ca. Everything's free and anonymous, of course. And we'll get to some uh, some more contact information throughout the uh, the half-hour show here. But lots to get through, including your emails piling in. And uh, the week that was is always how we get warmed up. So, Van, what's going on on your end, pal? Hey, John. Good to be here with you. Let me tell you about an interesting call I got uh, this past week. Uh, a very unfortunate call, but an interesting one that I think our listeners could learn from. Uh, so this was from a 42-year-old uh, gentleman. He's a construction worker. Uh, he's a father of two young children under 10. Uh, his wife is a nurse. Actually, we helped her with a disability matter a few years ago, and that's the reason why he had contacted us, because we were able to uh, help his wife uh, uh, resolve her claim with their long-term disability insurance company. So anyway, so he calls me because he had a slip and fall a couple of months ago. And, um, you know, essentially what happened was that he went to his parents' apartment building. Uh, he parked his car. He made his way to the entrance and he slipped and fell just as he was about to enter the building. Now, there's a security camera there that caught everything. And that happens sometimes. And I'm going to get back to that in a second. Uh, so he has a slip and fall and he falls on his right knee. Now, keep in mind, this guy works full-time plus overtime. He's been doing that for about 15 years or so. So very stable work history. Uh, he's earning just over $60,000 a year base salary. Um, and, uh, you know, he has full benefits, etc. Uh, he breaks his knee. He needs surgery, uh, a knee replacement, actually. And uh, I've dealt with many knee replacements, many kind of uh, injuries of this type. They're, they're very significant. They're very serious, uh, especially because I can tell you from having discussed this with quite a few orthopedic surgeons in the past, the problem with these kinds of surgeries is that it impacts your mobility potentially into the long term and oftentimes requires subsequent surgery. So he, he's, he's having a knee replacement surgery now, but he's going to have to have a revision surgery, a, a, another surgery about 10, 15 years from now. At least that's what his orthopedic surgeon says, which is in line with what I've heard before. So it's pretty serious, right? Uh, and, and again, he's only, he's only 42 years old, so he's a young guy, uh, certainly by my standards. Uh, okay. <laughs> So he can't work. He's going to be losing income here for a certain amount of time. Potentially, uh, he's going to have difficulty actually doing his job down the road because his type of job is a very physical job. So there's going to be an income loss into the future. Let me give you just really quick math. If he doesn't work for a year, as an example, he's out $60,000 or so oh just for his base salary, right? And that's the base salary, okay? not bonus, not anything else. Uh, if he's not going to be able to go back to a full-time position, let's say that he has a, uh, he goes back to a part-time position, or let's say he's not, be able, you know, not able to do overtime. Let's say he goes down to $50,000 for the next five years. Well, that's a loss of $10,000 a year. That's an extra 50 grand. So 50 plus 60, it's already $110,000 he's owed just for income loss. But there's going to be other types of expenses here. First of all, he's entitled to pain and suffering damages, right? Something like a, a broken knee like this, I can tell you, would probably assess at about eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000, maybe even more, just for pain and suffering. You're already now getting into the 200s, potentially. In other words, compensation that he's owed for this injury, potentially in the $200,000. But it doesn't end there. 
because we don't know what kind of benefits he has yet. We don't know if he's going to need uh, what kind of treatments he's going to need into the future. Is he going to have issues with a surgery? Is he going to be able to gain full mobility? Is he going to need things around the house? This is a case that, in my in my experience, could easily get into the three, four, even five hundred thousand dollars worth of compensation. Now, let me backtrack a bit. Okay, so we're dealing with a, a a broken knee here. Here's an interesting twist in the situation. He actually injured his right knee about six or seven years before that in a cycling accident. He didn't he didn't break it, but I think he torn his meniscus. Something happened. Now. He recovered. He recovered, let's say, fully to the extent that he was able to work full time afterwards, right? As a construction worker, do everything sure. without hindrance, you know, uh, deal with uh, snow plowing at home, take care of the grass, take care of the kids and all that. But I can tell you that the insurance company that we're going to go after here, the insurer of the building where this happened, I can tell you they're, they're going to make a big deal out of the fact that he had a prior injury to that same knee. So this brings us now to the pre-existing condition argument that insurance yeah. companies often throw at people. And it's an interesting argument, right? Because, I mean, John, I don't know about you, but certainly I have pre-existing issues. If I injured myself, I can tell you the insurance company combing through my medical records would see quite a lot of things that Same. I've had happen to me, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. And that comes with age, that comes with being active, etc. But people need to understand is that although insurance companies are going to argue pre-existing condition, this requires an analysis, an in-depth analysis. And the reason why this is important is because we always look at the before and after the accident. I don't care that he had a weak knee before the accident. I care whether or not functionally he was able to do his job. Could he work? Could he do everything he was supposed to at work? Was he able to work those overtime hours? Did he take any sick leave as a result of his knee in the year or two before the accident? If I can show through the medical records, through the work records, that he actually had no impact, that his knee, knee injury six, seven years before didn't have any impact on his functionality at home, uh, at work, with activities of daily living, etc. If I can show that there was no impact, the insurance company is not going to be able to point to this and somehow weaken his case or somehow argue that he should get less money. Right. However, it could actually work to his advantage. Why? Because in many instances, when you have somebody with a pre-existing condition, they are arguably more vulnerable because of that condition. Right. Well, that vulnerability is not held against the injured individual. It's held against whoever caused the injury now. Meaning that the fact that he has a weak knee, so long as he was able to use it, so long as there was now exacerbation as a result of his pre-accident condition and this injury, He's actually going to be able to use the fact that he had a bad knee against the insurance company by arguing, listen, I was vulnerable. I had a bad knee. You now made it that much worse. That is a completely valid argument. And I can tell you it's going to attract significant compensation because there's going to be little argument that somehow this pre-existing condition affected his ability to work and do everything else. Okay. I want to go back for a second to the security camera that we talked about. Yeah, sometimes it does happen that we have either a security camera or if you have a car accident, you have a camera on a car that captures the accident and how it happened. Why is this important? Well, it's important for two reasons. Number one, it's important because I can guarantee you there's going to be a he said, she said situation here. Whereas, uh, you know, the, the people at the apartment building, whoever manages it, or the winter maintenance company that was supposed to do maintenance here and did not, they're going to argue that he... Uh, wasn't watching where he was going. 
Whereas the security camera, not just it doesn't just prove that the accident happened, right? So he can't just make that up. We actually have it on camera. <laughs> but at the same time, it potentially could give us insight as to the condition of the area where he fell. You know, we always talk about, John, you and I, that when you have an accident, um, it's very important for you or someone close to you, if there's somebody accompanying you, a friend, a family member, someone, to take photographs of the area where you fell so we can actually show Right, right there and then. Look, there was no salt. Uh, the, the the ice was not uh, dealt right with yeah. uh, the winter. Exactly. Very, very important. And, and a lot of times, people, of course, when they're injured like that, they don't do that because all they care about and focus is their their injury, which I understand completely. But again, unless we have that contemporaneous record or someone who's gone to that area and taken photographs, maybe even videos of the area to prove that, look, this area was not properly maintained, it's it's going to be a he said, she said. doesn't mean you have no case. It just means it makes it that much harder. So the fact that we have a security camera here is absolutely critical, in my view, uh, to proving that, in fact, the area was not maintained, and it was not maintained. So that was the first reason, right, that it shows us the area. Mm-hmm. There is a second reason why this is important. This is, this is interesting. I've had cases, John, where uh, I have... Uh, questioned winter maintenance companies, owners and operators of winter maintenance companies. Um, And I've asked them, listen, did you maintain the area where my client had fallen? They say, yes. I say, okay, well, I want to see records. And they say, okay, here you go. Here are the records that showing that we were just there an hour before. I can tell you, John, I've had at least three instances, three instances where they produced records to me in different cases but we had security camera footage that showed that those were fake. Come then, in on. fact, no one came. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you could, you could just imagine how quickly the insurance company came to the table to try and settle the case when I actually showed them, when I exposed the fact that they were actually lying. They understood that this, if, if this ever went before a judge or a jury, they'd be dead in the water. I mean, it's it's a horrible situation. So my point is security cameras can actually go a long way, not only to, to showcase the, the area where you fell in the event that you didn't take any photos or videos or someone didn't, but also to question and to see if we can document when in fact was the last time that the area was maintained. Because you know, this is Canada, it's winter, you have these harsh conditions. This is why it's important that we have laws to protect individuals who are going on properties. And in this case, he wasn't trespassing. He was going to his parents' uh, apartment building. So very, very important for us to be able to view this footage. Hopefully, the footage goes back at least 24 hours. Typically, that's what they do. And we can see when is the last time, because we can correspond when the last time that there was maintenance done with the weather records. When was there a snowfall? Well, how did the temperatures hit, right? We do all this due diligence because we know what we're doing, obviously. This is what we do for a living. Me, myself, the lawyers on my team. So really, really important. So anyways, we're going to be able to help this gentleman. My gut sense, just from speaking with him and looking at some of the documentation, he's looking at about four dollars to $500,000 in compensation wow. that he's going to be owed here. So again, I tell people out there, if you're injured in a slip and fall, if you know someone who's injured in a slip and fall or a car accident or whatever other injury, Get in touch with us. doesn't cost anything to speak with us. I'll tell you exactly what the, the situation is. I'll tell you if you have a case. If you don't have a case, I'll tell you that too. But if you have a case, I'll explain to you why you have a case, what's my assessment of your case, and what you need to do to recover the money that's owed to you and your family. 
Good warm-up. Lots more to go. We're going to get to your email after a uh, short break, which we're going to slide into right now. In the meantime, here's how you get a hold of Savannah if you're dealing with something uh, of that nature, magnitude, or otherwise. Uh, could be a smaller, simple question. Just ask it. Toll-free, 1-855-821-5900. Email help at disabilityrights.ca. And another place for you to ask questions anonymously. It's a good one. It's called MyDisabilityQuestions.com. That has a searchable database, which is kind of a cool part of the algorithm, so you can see if a question similar to yours has already been asked and answered. Save you a bit of time. If not, leave it there, and it will be answered again, MyDisabilityQuestions.com. Lots more to go as we take a short break and right back with lots more of the Disability Law Show. Hang in there. And welcome back. Almost set off in your weekend. A little bit more to go here. Some of your email, listener email always comes in all week. We try to get through as many as we can here on a uh, on a Friday toll-free number. If you just want to leapfrog that, go right to a phone call with Savannah and his team, one 855 But that email is help at disabilityrights.ca. Going to kick those off with uh, Yvonne here. Savannah, yeah, first one says, guys, well, uh, on LTD, my department was sold to another company. Once approved to return to work, I anticipate an employer will uh, severance me out uh, with a gradual return to work. I'm not sure I will be successful. Assuming there is severance, can you confirm that recurrence clause with the insurance no longer applies? Yvonne knows the terminology, but uh, break it down. She knows. Yeah, let's break it down to make sure people here understand. So, so John, before the break, you had mentioned uh, this online website we have, which is uh, pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. For anyone out there who, for whatever reason, doesn't want to call us or email us, you can go to pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. If you have a question about your short-term or long-term disability claim, like Yvonne here, and you'll be able to get anonymous, accurate, and fast answers to your questions. And of course, you can always get in touch with us after. Uh, but of course, we love it when people call us and, and email us. We, we always speak with people about their cases, their situations. Uh, you know, we always have, to- always have time for you. It's not going to cost you a dime to get this advice. So, so there's nothing to lose. So, so let's turn to Yvonne here, John. Now, she says her department, she's, she's on LTD. She's on long-term disability. We don't know why, but she's on long-term disability. Her department was sold to another company. Okay, this happens quite a lot when companies either shut down or get sold. People are very concerned. She says, once I'm approved to return to work, I anticipate my employer will severance me. So I, what I don't understand or what I don't know at this point is if she means that once she's told by the insurance company that they want her to start a return to work program or if it's once she is ready to go back to work i don't know what the what, what the situation is but for the purposes of our analysis i think what we can assume john is what happens if you are on ltd your company shuts down your employer shuts down or are getting sold to another company let's just break that for a second from the rest of the questions here that she has if that happens, it does not affect your long-term disability. Remember, once you're on long-term disability, your relationship is now with your insurance company, not your employer. So the only way that you don't get long-term disability is if you don't qualify under the LTD policy, under your policy. Maybe you've reached the, the age of cutoff, which is 65 under most policies. Maybe you're ready to go back to work. Maybe you're just not disabled anymore. Well, in that case, you're not going to get LTD. There's any maybe there's non-compliance on your part. You're not getting treatments. You know, then the insurance company can just stop. My point is, if your company, your employer, either shuts down or gets sold, but you're an LTD, your LTD should continue. And if it doesn't, if there's concerns there, please give us a call. Again, doesn't cost anything to ask us these questions and to get answers. Now, what happens if she gets severance? Well, if she gets severance. As you know, John, we've talked about this a lot. Most LTD policies contain a provision 
that stipulates that if you get severance, the insurance company is entitled to uh, a, 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 um, uh, a credit for that. So, it, you know, if you're getting $10,000 in severance and you're getting $2,000 a month for LTD, the insurance company is going to say, oh, you just got severance equivalent to five months worth of LTD. So that means that we're not going to pay you for five months. So again, remember, if you're getting severance, uh, the insurance company will likely try and get a credit. But I always often tell people, you know, many lawyers at our firm deal with employment law issues. So if at any point you're offered severance, you should come to us so we can assess that severance and tell you if it's even appropriate. And then maybe there is a way to deal with that severance in such a way as to minimize what the insurance company, your insurance company, can get credit for so that more money goes in your pocket. Okay, let's move on. She says, what happens if she has a gradual return to work? So this happens a lot, right? Either people feel ready to go back to work or to try to go back to work after being on disability, or the insurance company says, hey, John, we think you're ready to go back to work. And you say, okay, let me try. Well, a lot of people are saying or ask me, uh, rightly so, well, what happens if I try and I'm not able to? I find that it's premature. Um, you know, I, I, I went into work, I started vomiting or my head spinning, whatever. I cannot actually work. I made a mistake. She's mentioning here the recurrence clause. What's a recurrence clause? Under the vast majority of long-term disability policies, there is a section, a clause in those policies that we reference, we term, we call, a, uh, we call it a recurrence clause. Yep. What that means is that if within a certain period of time after you try to go back to work, let's say it's three months, four months, six months, if within that period of time you are unable to sustain that work, meaning you try to go back, but that try is simply not happening, you need to go back on disability, your disability payments should snap back. You should be getting those disability payments. You should be going back on long-term disability. You should be able to go there without waiting any, any you know, the initial period of time, which we call the elimination period. You know, when you apply for long-term disability, there's a right. period of time where you don't get disability. That doesn't apply here. You should be able to get LTD immediately. You have to obviously have, you know, the support of your doctors. You give that to the insurance company and you should be able to go back uh, on disability. Uh, side note here, John, I say should be able to go back on disability. Unfortunately, again, as we know, many insurance companies oftentimes you know, put up roadblocks. People in good faith try to go back to work because they're honest, hardworking individuals. Uh, they try, they're unable to, they know they have this recurrence clause, they've been assured by their adjuster that if anything happens and they're not able to go back uh, or the uh, return to work is not successful, they can go back on LTD only to find out that, no, the insurance company is not going to let them go back. Right. They deny their claim. For whatever reason, they say, we don't agree with your doctors. We think you can go back. You haven't given it a good enough try. I deal with a lot of individuals like that. I am telling you, John, we resolve these cases all the time. Insurance company, as long as you have your doctors in your corner, your doctors are saying, no, this person is just, he's not ready to go back or she's not ready to go back to work. They tried, but they're not able to, clearly. The insurance company should put you back on claim. So now Ivana is saying, assuming there is severance, um, she's saying, can you confirm the recurrence clause with the insurance company law no longer applies? No, that's incorrect. Those are two separate things. Again, remember, if you're on LTD and you get severance, the LTD insurer is simply going to try and get a credit for that service. Yep. For the, whatever the amount is, you got a severance, they're going to try and not pay you that amount in LTD. It has nothing to do with your right to trigger the recurrence clause if you've tried to go back to work and find within that 
allowable time frame that you're not able to. And John, I know sometimes we talk about these things and there's all these technicalities. And that's why I tell people, look, this is complicated stuff. I mean, for some people, maybe it's not, but it is very technical stuff. And we try to, as much as possible, simplify it here, but it's not easy for a lot of people to understand. So we try to look at these emails like Yvonne's here, and I'm trying to break it down for people. But the reality is when people contact me, they have specific questions about their specific situations. There are always facts that are different between case to case. This is why I tell people, give us a call, email us, have a conversation with us. We're simply going to give you information. In fact, in many cases, John, uh, people don't sign up for us for anything because they haven't been cut off or there isn't a problem. They just want to be reassured. We have no problem doing that. Okay, We are here for you. That's why we're doing this show. That's why we speak with people all the time from across the country, by the way, not just in Ontario. Uh, so those are the answers, uh, John, for Yvonne. Okay. Uh, certainly, we can help her with the severance, and, and certainly we can help her if she uh, she tries to go back to work, is unable to, and the insurance company doesn't put her back on LTD, we can help her with that as well. Yvonne, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, send that email along. And if you haven't got it already, which I'm sure you do, but just in case, the phone number, one 821 5900 think we could uh, squeeze Jill in here quickly. says, guys, thanks for taking the time to answer my question. I really appreciate that you guys do this for people. Recently, I was involved in an accident where the insurance company said I was 50% half responsible. I was going through a yellow light, and about halfway through the intersection, a car turned left, hit the front corner of my car, spun me into a parked car nearby. I was going the speed limit. The police said it wasn't my fault, and I even have a camera inside my car that recorded what happened. Do I have to just accept the decision of the insurance company? My car was a write-off, and I was on my way to a job interview, which I obviously never happened. I've worked as a marketing manager for a clothing store for the last eight years, and I earn around $85,000 a year, plus bonus. I'm not sure when I'll be able to start working again because of the back pain and headaches from this accident. What do you guys think? Very interesting question, Joe. I'm very sorry about the accident, but let me let me make sure that you understand what your rights are here. When the insurance company says that you are 50% responsible, what they're talking about is vis-a-vis any apportionment of uh, uh, the, the, the damage to your vehicle, perhaps, uh, or, or with respect to uh, um, um, any, anything to do with the, what the insurance company owes you. Let's put it that way, okay? okay. Uh, so, in other words, your deductible may be, may be increased here because they're saying that it wasn't 100% the other driver. This does not impact or should not impact, I can tell you, a legal claim for compensation against the other driver. Now, I can tell you, I can tell you that typically in those kinds of situations where you do have a left-hand turn, somebody is going straight, you do have in those situations a lot of times negotiations that happen down the road because there's going to be diametrically opposed evidence from the parties. Whoever is 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 was involved, you know, the other the, the other driver is going to say one thing, Jill is going to say something else, John. But here's where you know this really is very elegant here in terms of kind of what the solution may end up being. There was a camera that captured it. Remember, we started the whole uh, yeah. uh, segment today about the security camera with the slip and fall, the gentleman that was injured, the 42-year-old. We have that here for Jill. So that that actually may be you know, the nail in the coffin, so to speak, for, for the other driver here that was responsible for the accident with Jill. Uh, so in those kinds of situations, it doesn't matter what the insurance company here says. They can make their own decision when it comes to the deductible, to anything else. But when it comes to what we're dealing with here in terms of, of uh, a legal claim, which could be significant here, John, because she's a marketing manager. She may not be able to start at work for a while. She could be looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars in compensation. 
this is a case where I would love to help her to get the compensation she deserves from the other driver. And certainly she's not going to imp- be impacted in terms of what she's entitled to from her own insurance company for accident benefits. So really good questions. Jill, after the show, we'll get in touch with each other. We'll discuss your situation. and I'll explain to you exactly what options you have to get the compensation you deserve. Jill, really appreciate you reaching out and uh, finishing off the last few minutes of the show for you. If you've been listening and you want to reach out to Savannah and his team, they'll uh, they'll be glad to, to hear from you. Welcome to hear from you. Actually, one 821 5900 that email address we go to every Friday is help at disabilityrights.ca. And don't forget pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca for other information as well. And then finally, short, quick, and concise notations, information about LTD, really simple to navigate, LTD. FAQ.ca. Try that one as well. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll catch you next time here on the Disability Law Show.